I'm Reverend Harry Bridge. And I'm Dr. Scott Mitchell, and this is the Dharma Realm Podcast. We're coming to you from the Jodo Shinshu Center in Berkeley, California. This is the Dharma Realm Podcast for December 23rd, 2016, and today we're talking about changing demographics. So, uh, let's see, it's Monday, um, early in October, and I, I have no idea when we'll release this, but um, it's Monday in October, and I just came back from a trip to Denver to um, help the Denver Temple celebrate its uh, centennial. They've been in Denver for 100 years, which is quite an accomplishment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> in fact, actually, before I went there, interestingly, a lot of people were like, there's Buddhists in Denver, you know, so, mm. I mean, it's sort of interesting. People just don't know what's going on there. And they've been there for a long time, hundred mm. years. Come mm. on. It's, it's not the first wave of temples, but it's early on. Like, yeah. Think, so a hundred years ago, they it was 1916, right? so, yeah, yeah, before the war. So it's, you yeah. know, it's a big deal. Yeah. Anyway. Um, one of the interesting things about Denver is that, um, like a lot of temples, I think probably, a lot of temples outside of California, certainly outside of the Bay Area, um, although some temples in the Bay Area too, but, you know, there's a lot of demographic shifts happening in the BCA right now. Um, you know, the BCA is this organization that was founded by Japanese immigrants um, 120 years ago. Um, and, you know, a lot of the, the first, the, the Issei, the first generation of um, immigrants were farmers basically, right? So there's, um, it's actually like, there's dozens of temples, right, in small farming communities, mm-hmm. not only in the West Coast, but a lot around mm-hmm. Denver and a lot in other parts of the country. Um, and, um, you know, by the time you get to the Nisei and Sansei, of course, like the, the, the community is already beginning to shift and less people are interested in farming and are moving to cities. And, mm-hmm. you know, so these farming, these, these really old Japanese-American farming communities are... are um, gone basically Mm -hmm. but there's these temples that still exist which is sort of interesting i'm getting off topic so i'm gonna get back to what i'm my point here uh my point is is that the bca as people know was founded by a japanese american community and um over the last what would you say 20 years maybe Mm. maybe a little longer a little less i don't know um there's been a, a, a shift where more non-Japanese Americans are beginning to join the community. And I think this is probably more pronounced in places outside of specifically the Bay Area and California in general. Um, there's still a large Japanese American population in California. And there's also um, a uh, preponderance of temples here in California. Um, there's a lot of diversity within these temples. In fact, I was having a conversation with someone in Denver about um, how it's, it's interesting to me, every BCA temple is a little bit different. Like they're mm-hmm. all, there's a lot of things that are very, very much the same. Like I always feel like no matter where I go in the country, you always sort of feel at home in a BCA temple because mm-hmm. there's enough that's familiar, but there's also little tiny things that are different, right? Mm-hmm. Like in the services, it's like, Oh, they do the service this way or, or whatever. And someone was like, Oh yeah. Even if you look at the difference between, um, Alameda, Southern Alameda, Berkeley and Oakland, those temples are really close to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, how how far would you say those temples are for like ten miles of the most from each other? I say Southern Alameda is further, yeah. But Berkeley, Alameda, Oakland are within like five, five six miles, miles of each yeah. other, yeah. yeah. But even those temples are actually very different in terms of their mm-hmm. like like membership makeup and um, subtleties of services and whatnot. Mm-hmm. 
or programs that are offered. Um, But the farther away you get from the West Coast, I think things get different pretty fast. Um, And so in uh, Denver or Salt Lake City, um, the demographics are really sharply different. And so people were saying that they've reached the point in Denver, for example, where it's about 50-50 in terms of the population being um, Japanese-American versus non-Japanese-American, which is a significant shift in that community. Um, So... And sort of reflecting on that over my time there, it was, it was really interesting being there. Um, and the community is fantastic. People are um, really supportive and welcoming and um, uh, compassionate mm-hmm. and generally nice. Mm-hmm. Fun to be with people. And it's a celebration too, right? Yeah. 100 years is an amazing kind yeah. of milestone. So, um, yeah. But it was uh, sort of interesting to sort of see this thing that I think that we're sort of insulated from in some ways here in California. Like we know things are changing, but to be in a context where it's like, Oh, it's, it's really like really actually happening. And they're sort of, um, confronting that. And, and, and a really like, I think in a very positive way, sort of figuring out how to, um, how to make a new community, um, in a lot of really positive ways. So, but it, it um, in, in conversation with Harry before we started recording, um, we were sort of talking about um, this idea that has come up in other contexts about um, what might be sometimes called like cultural Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, I'm moving away now from a conversation about the BCA or about a partic- any particular temple and sort of talking about the way people have talked about Buddhism in America. Mm-hmm. Um, which is something I claim to know something about. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, one of the things people have, have done with uh, talking about Buddhism in America is sort of talking about how there's, sometimes people say there's two Buddhisms, right? How there's these Buddhist communities that are composed primarily of Asian or Asian Americans uh, versus these communities that are composed primarily of um, uh, converts, and usually that's a sort of a stand-in for white people mm-hmm. who are uh, converted to Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Um, and so here, like in some of these temples, you see, you know, both of these communities in one location, and that's an interesting phenomenon. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but in, one, in, in some, in some contexts, people have labeled um, Asian American Buddhism as uh, a baggage, a sort of cultural baggage, right, right. Which, which has some, some problems. Well, what are some of the various names? I remember ethnic Buddhists, mm-hmm. I think, was one. Should I deconstruct the whole thing? Yeah, deconstruct just, the whole thing. What about like that side of it? <laughs> what are the some of the terms that have been used over the past what twenty, thirty years? I think yeah, is yeah. kind of so. Um, it's interesting. I, I think that these these terms actually started. Um, they were sort of unnamed for a long time. So mm-hmm. the the first sort of scholarly books that were written on Buddhism in America were one by um, a woman named Emma Lehman and another one by um, Charles Priebisch. Um They both came out in, I think, prior to 1975. Um, and, and both of them sort of categorized different Buddhist communities, but they never labeled them as, as two Buddhisms. But there were certainly, like, hints at this um, sort of divide. So, like, Emma Lehman has a category called... Um, uh, what does she use? The term like church-like groups. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you think about 1975, mm-hmm. you know, so, so the larger history, right, there was, the, um, there were some Chinese immigrants around the gold rush. Those communities didn't um, uh, flourish in the same way as later Japanese immigrants toward the end of the 18th, uh, 18, 1800s. 
Um, so, uh, and then of course the U S passed immigration law. So there was zero immigration from, right. um, Asia. And so really it's like just the BCA, right. <laughs> For a long time, mm-hmm. the only like established Buddhist community in the, in the United States is the BCA up until 1965 when they changed the immigration laws. And then there's a huge influx of new Buddhist communities. And, and of course, in addition to the BCA, other Japanese American communities like the Zen community are here, but, um, the BCA is certainly the largest. Mm-hmm. So if you're thinking about somebody doing research, and Buddhism in the United States in the early 1970s, there's some, you know, a, an eclectic mix of sort of new religious movements. Shambhala International is just getting started. There's some new, um, like the um, San Francisco Zen Center is still pretty new. There's mm-hmm. some, you know, there's some smaller groups mm-hmm. like that. And then there's the BCA, right? Mm-hmm. So if you have a category of yeah. Buddhists in America in 1975 called church-like groups, who are you Buddhist talking churches about? Churches in America. <laughs> <laughs> It seems pretty obvious, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so, it's, but it's not until um, like the 1990s when these two categories get really like solidified in the scholarship, and people generally talk about convert groups or um, new Buddhist movements versus Asian American groups or um, uh, baggage Buddhists or cultural Buddhists or ethnic Buddhists um, mm-hmm. and other similar terms. Mm-hmm. And the and the implication there that I always think is sort of telling is when people talk about and this is this is somewhat older scholarship, but uh when people talk about um Buddhism in America versus American Buddhism. Right? So ah, right, 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 right. if you say Buddhism in America, the assumption is is that you're basically doing some form of Asian Buddhism in the United States right. versus some form of Buddhism that is um uh, native to the mm-hmm. United States, right? Mm-hmm. Um, American Buddhism is sort of native, not Native American, but you know, indigenous, right. so to speak. Um, it's a weird word to use in this context, but right. hopefully you don't want to. Well, but that's part of the ambiguity, the ambiguity <laughs> of the word, right? American Buddhism. Right? Right. And that's part of the problem. People talk about American Buddhism as if it's the convert Buddhism yeah. or bedstand Buddhism or bookstore Buddhism. I mean, there's different terms on that yeah, side yeah, too, yeah. right? Um, but that totally negates the uh, Asian-American Buddhist yeah, yeah, yeah. or the Asian-American experience, which isn't monolithic and changed over time. And Absolutely. Right? Um, and so I think that, you know, there's been lots of really good scholarship. Um, Charles Peebus has written more about this. Um, Paul Numerick has a, a couple articles about this. Um, Shannon Hickey, I think, has a sort of definitive word on the connection between um, sort of institutional racism in these terms and how mm-hmm. that all sort of plays out. Um, go read that stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, I feel like I can sort of defer to those much smarter mm-hmm. people than me to sort of parse out those things. But I think one of the... You'll give us links later. I will, I will put links in the description of the episode. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the interesting things, though, is that how quickly um, these categories start to break down. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, one of the people that always comes to mind is uh, the one of the ministers at the Denver Temple, Diana Thompson. Mm-hmm. Um, Reverend Diana is um, one of two ministers, resident ministers at, at the Denver Temple. But she actually, and she's, she's a white person. Mm-hmm. I think we just say that. Um, and she's not a convert. And this is one right. of the things she's that... She's second generation Buddhist. She's second generation Buddhist, exactly. Her <laughs> mom... She was born and raised a Buddhist, and she grew up in the Denver Temple and went to Dharma school and did all of the things that you know kids do in Dharma school and became a minister. And so it's part of her heritage. And right, so it's like oftentimes people will say, "Oh, heritage Buddhists." They'll sort of assume heritage Buddhists are Asian Americans, right, mm-hmm. because they grew up in the community, and so that's their heritage. But Diana's not. Mm-hmm. Um, 
a Japanese American. So it's like, well, how do you, what category does she fit in, right? And the same is true for Asian Americans who didn't grow up Buddhist. I know lots of Asian Americans. I'm, I'm looking at somebody who has some Asian American heritage who did not grow up Buddhist, for example. <laughs> Although I don't consider myself Asian American well, in the yes. least. So I said you have some Asian American heritage, or you have Asian heritage. Asian right? heritage, yeah. Um, so there's that's that's the that's one of the problems with a hard and fast dichotomy between these communities is that there's a lot of ways you can easily sort of deconstruct those categories, and mm-hmm. that sort of complicates things. Mm-hmm. Um, Leaving all of that aside for the moment, I think... But complication that, is fun. <laughs> I want to get back to the baggage thing because right. This, right, term, right, right, right. this term actually, I think, became popular because of an article by um, uh, Jan Nattier, a scholar of... Mm. Uh, a Buddhist studies uh, scholar. And, and Jan Nattier's work is, is fantastic. I think, mm. um, I think her work is, is, you know, is really great. And she's also a fantastic writer, but at some mm-hmm. point in, in, the, in the mid-90s, she wrote an article, I think, for Tricycle Magazine, where she mm-hmm. talked about different kinds of Buddhism. And what she was trying to do was talk about not so much the communities, but the, the methods by which Buddhism came to the mm-hmm. United States. So one of them was um, export Buddhism, meaning that mm-hmm. um, basically Buddhists in Asia were proselytizing, right? They mm-hmm. made a conscious decision to say, we are going to export Buddhism into the United States. And you can think about people like... Um, uh, people who I can't remember right now, but <laughs> well, D.T. Suzuki's in teacher, a way, yeah, D.T. Suzuki right? was certainly one of them. But more recently, um, um, the teacher of um, Robert Aiken and the um, mm. uh, in the Diamond Sangha in Honolulu. But his his teacher was mm. sort of a, um, a proselytizer. I can't okay. remember his name right now. But also more recently, the um, the Shilai Temple in Los Angeles was established by a Taiwanese organization, and they like have an active sort of proselytization. Mm. Um, mechanism. Mm. They are actively trying to spread the Dharma, right? Mm. And she wanted to contrast that with um, a t- couple different kinds of. I think so. I think she actually had three categories, but mm. one of them had a couple of different names, and one of them was baggage Buddhism. And it was mm. basically the Buddhism that was brought to this country as part of immigration, right? Mm. So immigrants are coming to this country, and they're bringing with them their entire cultural heritage, which includes religion as baggage. And I don't think that she meant this um, in a derogatory sense at all, but it was interpreted as such. Mm-hmm. Um, and Maybe I think luggage would have been a better term. <laughs> like baggage already has cultural baggage as a kind of a, yeah. a dis, not discriminatory necessarily, but kind of a um, derogatory kind of sense. But luggage doesn't. Mm-hmm. Cultural luggage, that's not a term. Right? <laughs> luggage Buddhism would have been better. Where were you, man, 20 yeah, years ago? <laughs> you should ask me, hey, if I was on the editorial board, I could have helped out. But that's it's kind of an unfortunate accident, maybe in the terms, yeah, or yeah, yeah. part of cultural bias, like subconscious cultural cultural yeah, bias. I don't yeah. know. And, and as a sort of ta- side note here, I think one of one of the, the most salient issues here is that oftentimes when we talk about cultural baggage, particularly as white people, we forget that we have our own cultural baggage, mm-hmm. that we're not coming from a cultural neutral place, right? right? right, right. Um, as a white person, I have my own cultural baggage with mm-hmm. which I bring with me to my understanding of Buddhism. Mm-hmm. So it's unfair for me to say, oh, as an Asian person, you need to let go of your cultural baggage and find the pure Buddhism or pure mm-hmm. Dharma or whatever mm-hmm. it might be, as if I don't have any of my own baggage, right? right? That's, that's the fundamental problem. And that's, that's really, I think, the, where the derogatory connotation of the term cultural mm-hmm. baggage comes from, because the assumption there is that 
it's just it's just baggage it's luggage you can let it go you can just sort of mm-hmm. drop it off and not be connected to it anymore and i think that that's um just fundamentally incorrect like i think you know culture is really important and i don't think that you should expect people to let go of their heritage or stop being who they are right. because it for well, whatever reason yeah there's so other that's, aspects that's, too that's part of the problem and that's why that right. term is right. is but there's also the idea that um, maybe they don't take Buddhism seriously or their kind of Buddhism is inferior because it's got all this, even in Asia, it had cultural baggage, mm-hmm. right? And that, you know, that there's all these cultural accretions that aren't actually, they're not really Buddhism. Not they're true, not pure yeah, Buddhism. Yeah, yeah. They're, oh, this extra stuff that the Asians just, unfor- I mean, that's a long discourse for in the scholarship beyond nothing to do with immigration, yeah, right? And that Asian Buddhism is fundamentally flawed and, um, uh, you know, just um, degraded and not the true Buddhism and that it kind of, so somehow we, quote unquote, whoever that is, have managed to pull away the, the um, all that, that the garbage and the baggage and the extra stuff that got stuck on there. We're finding the true core, right? And that, um, but... American Buddhists, convert Buddhists, whatever, and I'm being sarcastic here, right? We, as serious Buddhists, that aren't, it's not part of our culture, it's because it's our religion, or not even our religion, it's because it's, we're looking for the true, pure essence, and we found it, right? So, um, I think that that's part of it, too. Um, yeah, a little, a little, a little, little bit. <laughs> another, another great article to read is by Natalie Cooley. Mm. Um, she's a researcher here at the IBS, um, Western Self, Asian Other, and she, she teases apart these, these things mm. about the, the sort of um, uh, particularly academic, and this, this is coming out of um, primarily cultural anthropology, which um, assumes that there's some sort of pure culture out there. Mm that has been unencumbered by Western influence, right? And, and this is sort of influenced an early generation of Buddhist scholars who are looking for that quote unquote real or true or pure or authentic Buddhism that is unaffected by culture. And, and I think this is probably where we were thinking we would go <laughs> in this episode. If, if we actually had an, any idea where we were gonna go. If we had, if we had a plan. <laughs> But I think one of the questions I think we had was, or one of the things we discussed earlier was just a sort of idea of where does where does culture end and religion begin? Mm-hmm. That's right? one aspect. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, we we sort of approach the subject as if there as if there is some sort of pure dharma that mm-hmm. exists outside of culture, and and maybe there is. But the the real question is where where is that line? Like, w- at what point can you say, oh, okay, mm-hmm. you know how many layers do you got to peel back, so to speak, right? Um, before something becomes the real and true Dharma versus just a cultural practice again, being somewhat sarcastic. Um, and, you know, and, and I think part of the reason why I think this resonates for me and I think is an important question to think about, particularly in terms of shifting demographics or um, the way in which Buddhism is expressed in this country, you know, I think that... For me, a, a huge part about Buddhism is the three treasures, right? You take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. Mm-hmm. And I think that when people... I'm going to be very careful about how I phrase this. <laughs> <laughs> I think that sometimes when people sort of talk about the pure 
Dharma or the pure Buddhist, Buddhism, they're they're really focusing on the the, the, the true teachings, right? Of, mm-hmm. So they're just looking at that Dharma part, mm-hmm. and they're sort of forgetting that there's also that Sangha part, mm-hmm. right? And if Buddhism exists within a community, then that community is sort of necessarily embedded within a particular cultural context. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's there's already something sort of in there that's sort of pointing to a connection to the the world, right? Um, so and inevitably, I think what happens is we sort of arbitrarily decide at some point, oh, okay, these things over here are culture or social practices or community events, and these things over here are the Buddhist things. Mm-hmm. But I, I think at yeah, some that's really hard to do. I think yeah. at some point that's just totally arbitrary, and yeah. we're just sort of. You know, and this is like a, a, a tradition by tradition, temple by temple, block by block kind of thing, person by person kind of thing, mm-hmm. right? Where it's like, oh, I think this is Buddhism and this isn't Buddhism. And the next person is like, oh, well, I think that there's something Buddhist about this. So we should include that, you know? So right, it's right, like right, it's, right. it's a negotiation. It's a conversation. It's not, ah, yeah. you know, a hard and fast um, bubble. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That religion exists inside of, right. it's permeated, and, and right. you know. Well, and language is another place to look, and so one example for me is um, itadakimasu, right? right? This practice yeah, yeah. in J- Japanese cultural practice of saying before eating, saying itadakimasu, right? And um, I think for for the average Japanese person, it doesn't really have any meaning. It just is the thing you say before you eat. But the Buddhist meaning behind it is itadakimasu is this humble um, expression and humble form of saying, I'm receiving this. Mm-hmm. But by saying it in the humble form, the, the, aver- the, the equal form will be moraimasu. Right? So it's even a different word, but they both mean to receive. I'm receiving. I receive. Right? But moraimasu is equal, so I'm receiving it from an equal. But if I say itadakimasu, it's itadaku, it's to receive humbly from something bigger than me. And... Um, uh, I remember Reverend Kusada, my chanting teacher, taught this, and he would say, to say itadakimasu is we're saying thank you to the entire universe, hmm. right? That we're acknowledging and trying to be mindful of the fact that this meal is not coming out of a vacuum, that this meal is coming at the expense of lives, of the um, animals and plants that gave their lives for it. It's coming because of all these innumerable causes and conditions of all the different ingredients, the people that made it, right? That, and so exp- realizing that I can only exist in the context of others, with, with the sacrifice of others, right? And so by saying itadakimasu, ideally, it's this mindful expression of gratitude. I wish there was an English word that could say that because if it's in the, the Japanese form, itadakimasu, it has no meaning to a non-Japanese English speaker or other language mm-hmm. until you're explained it, until it's explained to you. But, you know, even for Japanese people to understand it, they don't necessarily know what it means when they're thinking. So language, culture, um, Buddhism, right? They're all tied up in this one word, itadakimasu. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's no easy answer. Yeah. Um, we're not going to get into this simple place where all of a sudden everything's revealed and transparent, right? And everything can be explained to us in English and we can just go about our life without thinking. It's explained to us instantly. That's kind of an illusion, right? Um, so maybe these cultural things, rather than bury them or, or try and get rid of them so that we can just only have to speak English and then we'll understand, in a way, maybe it's a... This conversation is a way to address race in our country and address culture in our country. Whoa, whoa, we don't want to talk about race. <laughs> no, I know you do. 
I mean, this is exactly what we're facing, right? That different cultures have different relationships to the world, different relationships to the divine or the true or whatever we want to call this greater reality beyond just everyday reality. And I think our life is richer with a variety of expressions. I don't want just one expression. I want a whole bunch of expressions. I don't even just want itadakimasu. I would like to know um, other um, expressions of um, this relationship in our everyday life because that's a great thing about itadakimasu. It's one of the basic parts of life, eating. Everyone has to eat, right? And part of our problem in America is that we're um, just destroying the world and not just America, right? Just the way culture is going. We're、um, eating too much meat and destroying the environment, just raising all the cows and、um, just destroying the environment with just packaging and、um, landfill and garbage and that kind of thing. And having more of a mindful approach to life、um, that's expressed in Itadakimasu. You know, it's, it's Buddhist originally, maybe, but it's also Japanese. But it's not only Japanese. It doesn't have to be only for Japanese people or only for Japanese speakers.、Um, so, that intersection,、mm-hmm. right, of, of nation and culture and ethnicity and language and religion, to me, that's where things actually happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And if we're just going to simplify things down to make America great and, <laughs>、um, you know, that somehow we have to go back to what America's really about, to me, what America's really about is this. The melting pot, you know, and not in negative way of just glossing over the differences, but the actual um, engagement um, with um, all these different approaches so that maybe we can get to what things are really about and not to just kind of a service level. So you're running for office then, is what you're saying? <laughs> 2020. Because I would totally not vote for you. <laughs> <laughs> all right, 2024, let me get my platform together. Good, you need some time. <laughs> Work that stuff out. <laughs> Be the first Buddhist president. <laughs> that sounds like the worst job ever. Tell me about I it. I mean, the best job is being ex president, like former president. Right, 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 right. Because then you just golf all day. You just golf all day, do whatever you want. Yeah. Take a library. You get your own library name. Painting, you. you know. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>、uh, so I think we got way more to talk about. <laughs> Because you just like open up a can of worms right there. But I, I think. Whether, whether this has come out before or after the election. Yeah, this will be interesting to find out. Yeah. You know, like, you, you, we might have to do like a follow up episode. Yeah, redo it. Like, yeah, yeah. Depending on how things I turn was、out. being all jokey, but now I'm, <laughs> yeah, now now I'm terrified. Now I'm <laughs> trying to get my passport in order so I can leave. Well, Reverend Diane promised to take us all across the border. If,、uh, okay. If, the border from Colorado? Yeah, yeah. To where? I don't know, but she was like, you know, she's a tall white lady. She could take anybody anywhere.、And、but like, the borders are like <laughs> other states. Oh, the American border. She can, she can get us out.、Yeah. Okay. She's got a plan.、Okay. Don't worry. So, you know, when things Canada, go south,、Canada. we'll figure it out. When things go south, I'm going north. <laughs> This, this got weird quick. <laughs> But part of, I think part of kind of what we were talking about with, with the 50 50 is interesting because it seems like clearly delineated. Oh, 50% of the temple is Japanese American,、mm-hmm. 50% is not. How, how easy to understand in a way. Mm-hmm. But it's not easy to understand at all. It's really complicated. The 50% that's Japanese American, they're not Japanese or Japanese American. There's a lot, you know, the, that culture has changed a lot、uh, over the past hundred years, 
right? In that temple, I'm sure, even. And um, some of the non-Japanese people are actually the heritage Buddhists, and maybe some of the Japanese people are part of the convert Buddhists. Mm -hmm. I'm half Japanese, but I'm a convert. I didn't grow up Buddhist. My mom wasn't Buddhist. She converted to Christianity. She was a convert, too. So this kind of tangled web of... You never know what you are. <laughs> yeah. Tell me about it. This kind of um, tangled web of identity, but to me, that's what Buddhism's good at. It's about looking at those things, deconstructing it, opening it up, um, putting it out to look at and question and in a positive, constructive, critical way, mm -hmm. right? Um, and that's what we need. Well, yeah. Ideally, that's all we need, <laughs> right? I, so that's the essence of pure Buddhism for you. Yes. There you go. Critical Buddhism. Solved. Solved.